You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, thank you that we are gathered again uh, with your people to try to hear your word and to take on this week knowing that you love us and you have redeemed us and you're drawing us closer ever to our eternal home. Uh, be with us this hour and through this day in Christ's name we ask. Amen. So, hey Ron, hey, come on in. I'm going to push it too now. Um, um, all right, so the, the, the broad topic is what makes the church the church? And the simple answer is always is Jesus makes the church the church and all God's people say amen and we go home. But we also know as believers, that's a, that's a you know, there, there's always more when you throw out the name Jesus. There's always more too when we say things like the church or Jesus. And so, uh, again, just by way of uh, background and, and connection with what we're doing today, uh, part, part of the reasoning behind this uh, is the degree to which the church uh, or the, even the idea of it gets so convoluted uh, it, with our cultural assumptions, uh, our political commitments and values, and, and now today our social or, or society, what we would call society. And, and hopefully, at least what I've, what I've wanted to do uh, you know, in, a, in my own limited time here, is to, to try to tease out that we, we're, we're yes and no. We are a culture, and we kind of are a political group, and we're kind of a society. But not like uh, common definitions of those terms or ideas lend themselves. And, that, and the reason we can't be that is because we have to test it always against Scripture, and uh, what, uh, how Scripture informs what we mean by these things. So, when, for instance, uh, when we say we're a, a culture, for example, um, we, we talked about Matthew 16 and the establishment of, of the church, and we talked about definitions of culture in light of that, and our conclusions were something to the effect, yeah, we're a part of the culture we, in which we practice and participate, but we're also always apart from it. We're never subsumed by it because we never hold to the same symbolic and ritual uh, uh, sort of meanings that the larger culture is entrusted with. We're entrusted with something else. Uh, we are entrusted with uh, the word and the sacraments. We're entrusted with a unique culture. Uh, if we look at culture in terms of its symbolic patterns, and that trust is given uh, by Christ himself. It's commissioned by Christ. Um, the church is an earthly witness to Christ and, and the kingdom of heaven, which was our first in the series, that locating the church and the kingdom of heaven in a kind of uh, continuum we possess unique language, symbols, and rituals and values that make Christ present to us in this life, but also they, we, are, we anticipate. We don't have it perfectly yet. We have it imperfectly. And the church is what bears witness to this as it is entrusted to the preaching of the word and the giving of the sacraments and baptism. 
and the Lord's Supper. So that was kind of our, it's a really kind of thumbnail of what we did that Sunday on culture for those who, who weren't with us. And then we turned to questions of, well, what about politics? And we looked at different types of political communities in history um, and how uh, we, we get to these definitions. And then, of course, we have to wrestle again with, well, what does that mean uh, in terms of the scriptures? And in terms of scripture, we cannot separate the church from the idea of the kingdom of, of heaven. Again, the kingdom of God. And we have to wrestle with the meaning of the church politically in terms of a king, in terms of a kind of loyalty uh, that is be- embedded in politics. I mean, we are political creatures. We get up and you can't go through a day without, you know, we're almost overly politicized now compared maybe. Maybe we need a little more culture, a little less politics. But the, the point is we can't escape our, our political kind of uh, being, but the church itself doesn't possess political authority in the traditional way in, in a traditional sense. It possesses a different kind of um, politics. We bear witness to an inaugurated kingdom. And I think that wit, that word witness is really critical because that means in our life and our testimony and uh, in our life and our testimony, you get what I mean? We bear witness and how we are and be in the world. And that includes attendance in, in the way we participate in the church. We, the church is it's, it's political in the sense it does have, it has been commissioned to guard and pr- protect a proper and correct understanding of God's kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. We get it wrong. The church gets it wrong. But if you study church history, um, and if you reckon with Scripture and light of church history, you realize it's always coming back. It's all it's a, it's a it's a moving river. It's always moving and, and coming back to a kind of center in the historical moment it's in with the argument of what the church should be. And in that sense, uh, the, the church has a protective function as well politically, we might say. It also anticipates a kingdom. And uh, this is a somewhat of a controversial idea in the world of Christian thought, but I don't think in terms of Orthodox and Reform, Reformational Anglican thought. Uh, the, the church and the kingdom of God are not the same thing. They're not identical. The kingdom of heaven and the church are not identical, but the church is part of the kingdom of God. The church is the visible movement of the kingdom of God in a particular time and place. And then, of course, what we await is that fulfillment when we are actually spiritually. And then, of course, the resurrection. We are actually physically spiritual, physical beings in a new political order. Is that fair for those? I mean, that's kind of a summary of where we've been. Uh, And then I'll. uh, I hope to have conversation uh, if we have a few minutes. Um, so uh, we're, it's a culture, but not a culture. It's a, it's, a king, it's a political body, but it's not a political body. And that orientation can only be measured through uh, the scriptures and wrestling with scripture. Um, and, and I would say the same with society. So in, in a pattern that we, that we tried the last couple of times, let's just start with what is the idea of a society? Um, oh, I'll, I'll, there's also that great quote I love. A king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. 
Uh, it just kind of captures where we, I think we've been. It's a strange kingdom. As a pilgrim people waiting, we're waiting. We know our king is there, but we wait to see him and, and, and to bow before him as a pilgrim people. So, uh, obviously, I'm not going to go too far from that theme when I talk about a society. So what is a society? And these are very simple definitions. matter of fact, I got them out of a children's dictionary, and I thought, well, that's the best place to get anything most of the time. Uh, it, it's an association of individuals for common ends. I think we could agree that's a kind of social thing. An enduring and cooperating group whose members have developed organized patterns of relationships through interaction with one another. That's nice. Um, a community or broad grouping of people having common traditions, institutions, collective activities, and interests. What you begin to see is uh, <laughs> you can get into all kinds of sort of definitions of what society is or a society is. But the gist of it, it seems to be this collection of people with something in common. And then you can connect that to a lot of different dimensions of, of life. I think, those, I think those definitions are adequate uh, for saying what does it mean to be a part of a, a social group. I also think it's careless for us to say you can isolate society from culture and politics. There's a, there's a, I was so proud I got these circles to overlap on this thing, so please just bear with me. I mean, that, that took a few minutes. I just want you to know that. So, so culture, politics, and society. Um, have a strange sort of uh, uh, interaction with each other. And I think we, you just sort of in, we can intelligently say, yeah, that's true. The, the symbolism of culture, uh, ideas um, that, that, that bind us together also kind of connect politically with us, but they also, in terms of how we, how we interact with each other, um, in terms of what we would call the social. So there's that. I also think it's fair to say that it consists of many relationships. There's not one thing that you could say uh, that and, and, and nail it down and say, well, that's society right there. Right? There's families, there's work, there's friendships, clubs, education, religious practices. And you could keep really adding to that um, if, you, if you wanted to play around with it. And you begin to see that what we call a society is multifaceted, right? Um, and that's, uh, that's great. Okay, again, some, some, some foundational shovel work to get us to this sort of question about the church, right? And I think we can all agree, just like with culture and politics, we exist as social beings that maybe don't have everything to do with our church. I mean, look at uh, when we go to work or perhaps friends in our neighborhood or even relatives, <laughs> you know, uh, or organizations that the, the way we behave and act in church or or maybe not behave, but at least the way we interact in church is a different kind of interaction uh, than these other relationships. And uh, sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. Um, it might also be fair to say it's mistaken to call the church a society in a classical sense of, of, of this kind of thing. In the same way, it would be a mistake to reduce the church to a culture or a political body. Something different happens in the idea and practice of a church, of the worship of, of Christ and living the Christian life. Now, before I get to that, let me just kind of go through, I got to do the professor thing because it's the only way I'm satisfied with 
myself and learning. Um, but you may, you may remember this from at some point in your education. Um, and you may not, because that would be perfectly fair too. But generally, we identify six types of societies in the modern world. Okay? In the modern world, we tend to identify, and this starts in the 19th century as a kind of device for organizing and thinking about history. All right? We have the hunters and the gatherers, and a nice snapshot. The pastoral would be when uh, uh, you're starting to organize into um, animal husbandry, communities of animal husbandry, herding, shepherding, agricultural or horticultural society. Um, the, that's what you do. You farm. You learn how to farm. New technologies introduce new ways of producing food and organizing life. Feudal society then becomes an even more refined kind of hierarchy of powers and relationships around uh, agriculture. And then the great divide, at least in the modern world, industrial and now post-industrial, the, the world we're living in. Uh, th this is a, a, just a, a classic sort of dichotomy. Uh, not um, sort of a sectonomy, I guess, six, six, a pattern of six that uh, people use to say, this is what different types of social organization look like. And when you think about it, what, what you see here is the way moderns generally talk about society is we talk about it in terms of our needs. Our so, our, that what drives our society is our economic uh, needs, right? We got to eat. And, and we got to make a living. Um, and those needs and how we go about organizing accordingly are often called our social organization, right? How we produce things. And here's another one, the evolution of society. Um, it, it, to help you with the... the and... All right, this is, this is fair enough. But I also would point out that the whole concept is fairly new. People didn't talk about society in the 17th century, 16th century. Society is something that really popped up as a conversation around this kind and, and social life, around trying to make sense of history in light of uh, the new realities of industrial people. And so since the 19th century... The idea of society has increasingly been defined as relationships of production, consumption, and power. And I, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Because pay attention to that word power, because I think that's precisely what the church transforms when we talk about our social organization, our society. It transforms our notion of power. But if you're outside of that conversation or if you're just talking about the idea of social organization, especially if you tried to understand it through our news cycles or through our education systems, uh, society, is that's pretty much it. What is a society? Well, modern society is organized around these things. And at the root of it is the question of power itself, how power is distributed and used, who wins and who loses. That's what society becomes on this model. It's production, consumption, and power that results in gains and losses, winners and losers. It's the dominant narrative today by which both the past and present social relationships are interpreted. 
You don't have to stretch your imagination in Birmingham far, or any city, with the types of churches people choose to go to. Because often they reflect this idea of uh, what social world you're in because of these powers, uh, this relationship of, of, of political economy and power and such. Um, and all of history then gets read, all of social history gets read through this sort of grid, this lens of power. There's a, that's a, a relief from the second century AD of Roman slavery uh, found in Turkey. Um, there's, uh, uh, that, that's from, a, actually it's from a Psalter. Uh, Queen Mary Salter of, of a feudal lord. They, it's, they just don't look happy at all, but he's got some sort of stick over them, picking their. And then, of course, you recognize the, you know, the the modern idea of the fat cat, the industrial fat cat squeezing uh, people. Right. All of this, uh, I, the idea I'm trying to convey to you is all of social organization then becomes conceived by this relationship of have and have not power. And, and, and weakness. Am I making sense so far? Okay. And then you can extrapolate that, like I like to do, into other kinds of power and control. Um, uh, I, you can see that symbolically in these images. I mean, we, we live in our social dynamic, whatever the local expressions of it are, there's always this sense that it's more complicated and that the way power is used is always um, sort of uh, dangerous and exploitative, right? That the way we've pursued our lives, the way we organize ourselves, always borders on the dangerous and the exploitative. And then at the same time, we benefit. <laughs> you know, we benefit from these relationships. We, uh, we have tremendous freedom, uh, clean water, uh, infrastructure, medicine, etc., can be pulled out of this relationship of consumption and production and power. Right? Well, that's great. <laughs> okay, we've established that. What does that have to do with the church? Well, in the same way we talked about culture, in the same way we talked about politics, I think we have to reckon with the idea of the church as a society as a kind of counter-narrative to this, a subversion of this. Um, even though we live in this and this in terms of power and consumption and the social relationships it creates and the opportunities it creates, something else has happened with the establishment of the church. So the church can, it is both part of a society, but it's also apart from the society in which it exists. Making sense, at least I hope so far. It's, I, I can't tell with mask on. <laughs> so. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is, as with politics, the church bears witness to, but it also anticipates a different kind of social reality. Um, it carries certain character, characteristics that identify it as a, a society, but at the same time, the church, as Christ established it and as it is supposed to be practiced, defies secular notions of social power. Um, it's a heavy meal to eat on a late morning in August, but it's worth contemplating that for a moment. That just as we cannot claim 
to participate in the culture the same way when we partake in the word and sacraments. And just as we cannot claim as believers to be citizens of one kingdom, one world order, uh, we're citizens of two orders. Um, We cannot claim that the way society has come to define power and survival (laughs) and, and, and social organization is just limited to this or to the kind of hierarchies that emerge out of that, right? Uh, nor, nor even in, in simply, it's not simply this. Something else has been dynamically inaugurated that changes and uh, keeps us from conflating the social order of the world with the social sort of structure of the church and purpose of the church. And, yeah, it doesn't always look that way. <laughs> it doesn't always look that way in terms of culture or politics. And yet, the only way we can take serious measure of it is to go back uh, to, to Scripture. Okay? And that's what I want to do in the remaining time. I'll, I'll pause as I read from my Bible. <laughs> but uh, is there are any questions or clarifications on that sort of setup? I, the church, so, hierarchy, yeah, there is a hierarchy in the church. There is a hierarchy in the church, but that's where I would say we're both and. <laughs> that we're, you know, because there are expressions of church that say we're not. <laughs> there are expressions of church that are found firmly, no, 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 we are, and we have to be. Even the ones who say they're not tend to have a tacit hierarchy. <laughs> If we're honest, so that's the more dangerous. That's the more dangerous one, right? So I'm not. I'm not trying to suggest that. What I'm. I think what I'm trying to suggest is that the narrative of consumption and production and power and the kind of social relationships that emerge out of that do not have to be the governing life of the church. And it may not mean we get it right every time. I don't think we do. But that. That's what I was more trying to suggest. Anybody else? So, all right. Is that helpful, I hope? Or? Yeah, I think, I think you're going to get into a little more detail. I, we'll see. I, I'm going to... Kind of, yeah, okay. How do you define these things? That's right. So, here's the argument. or Here's what I would say we can turn to the Bible and trust. That the church is a new spiritual social reality. Just as it's a new spiritual, cultural, and political reality that Christ inaugurates, the church is also a new spiritual, social reality in the way we understand relationships with one another. And here's where it gets tricky. The the Bible doesn't use the word society or social the way we do. It doesn't talk about life that way. That's, an, that's a category we impose back on it to say, well, what, what, what does the Bible mean by these things, right? So what the Bible talks about is the spiritual reality that affects the social reality of the church and what the church anticipates. And my first point here, the church anticipates the eternal reality of the kingdom of heaven. 
Okay? And for this, I would encourage us to look at Matthew 22. If you don't have it, I'll read it. Let me, this, this is a, um, once again, we're going to be thrown back into the idea of the kingdom and the inauguration of the kingdom. And in Matthew 22, something really interesting happens. Uh, he's entered Jerusalem. And the, the, it begins with a parable. He's taking, well, he's taking on the Sadducees and the Pharisees, shocking. And he, he, he goes at a, a parable about what the kingdom of heaven may be compared like. And does anybody remember? He compares it to a wedding. He compares it to a wedding where the guests just aren't ready for it. <laughs> remember this one? Well, a wedding, now this is, this is me trying to, to parse this out, I, I think it's very, there's probably in terms of social and cultural interaction, a wedding about gets it in terms of who is invited, who's not invited, and who's a part, who's not a part, and the kind of festivity that goes around it. So he begins there with this parable of the wedding and those who are called and those who are chosen. All right. Then the passage shifts into a completely different point. Another famous point from, if you're familiar, the fair, this is the tax, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And that's what I really wanted to isolate. But you can't isolate it without looking at what's around it. So you got the parable of the wedding and what it means to be chosen and not chosen. And then you've got the Pharisees trying to tangle Jesus in his words about where a loyalty is supposed to be if you are the king. If you are really in charge, where is our loyalty? What is our social dimension? And he says, they, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, no, you should not pay taxes. No, he doesn't say that. It'd be nice if he did. We have a whole nother conversation this afternoon. <laughs> It may be even a movement, but it, that's just it. It's not a social movement, right? Jesus is aware of their malice. He knows he, they're trying to put him in a yes or no question about obligation, what we might even call social obligation. And he says, why put me to the test, hypocrites? Show me the coin. Whose likeness is on the coin? So a cultural artifact, right? A symbol of imperial power and social power is being produced. Money, right, is being produced. Therefore, render unto, they said Caesar's. <laughs> what were they going to say, right? Therefore, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's and God things that are God. Uh, Christ puts a severe dichotomy over this symbolic social and political power of consumption and production, money. And he puts a severe break between how that obligates us. And he makes it very clear that, that, that the kingdom he's inaugurating is not that, that the coin, it's not the coin of the realm, nor does it belong to the coin of the realm, that the kind of obligation that is coming through this kingdom is different. And it negates none of your obligations into the, the citizenship you've been born into, right? And then, i got to do one more, though, after that. He turns to the topic, the Bible turns us to the topic of what? The resurrection. The resurrection. We go from a, a passage, a parable about the kingdom and a wedding, 
insider and outsider. Then we turn, and, you know, through the God's calling. Then you go to this question of this severe sort of marker between the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and its purposes, and the power of the empire, right? And then you get, uh, you get the Sadducees ask about the resurrection, the final consummation of the kingdom, because that's what the resurrection is. It doesn't stop on the cross. The whole entire society of heaven is a resurrected society. It's a new heaven, a new earth, and a new body. The spiritual, social reality becomes a resurrected reality. Um, and they try to trick him into the question of if you marry, if you have a bunch of wives or husbands here on earth, what do you have in heaven? And he's like, gotcha, that's not the reality of heaven. <laughs> if marriage and family and social life that as a foundation of social life is what constitutes our order here, which it does, and it does through creation, in fact. But Jesus says, you're wrong because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, we neither marry nor are we given in marriage, but we are like angels in heaven. And uh, so again, Matthew 22, I think, helps us sort of excavate this idea of society through this, through Christ's own words about, I'm not talking about what you think this is going to be. You're trying to trap me on a social order that will never look like this again. <laughs> or will it be under the same power structures again? And then they try to press him on the, the greatest commandment. And what does he say? Love, your, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Is there a greater social summary than that, uh, than the, the commandment of love, right? A sort of power then is reoriented through love, okay? So I think Matthew 22 is a great positioning starting place to start talking about how the eternal reality of the kingdom of heaven is anticipated and that the spiritual social realities are starting to be rethought of in terms of resurrection and calling out, the calling out and the reordering of eternal reality. Spiritual social reality of the church redefines the social realities of the law in light of the promise. All right. Now, uh, Galatians 3 is what I, I would... Uh, I, I kind of marked as a as a place to think about this because it's the it's the passage after Paul has basically chastised this Galatians for turning back to a kind of Judaizing practices, right? The foolish Galatians. What have I been preaching in vain all these years, right? You're, you're behaving. I'm telling you, you're free now. And from the old practices of the law, you're justified by faith. Um, and in, in, in Galatians 3, he begins, <laughs> so much here, but he begins to unpack that new relationship that the Gentiles are supposed to have with the old Abrahamic community and how that looks through Christ. And the blessing of Abraham then comes through Christ. And he says, um, after he teases out the, the relationship between Abraham 
in the law, um, he, he says, um, before faith came, we were, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming that faith could be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, remember, he's addressing the church in, in Galatia. For as mi- This is the, the, the point I want to emphasize. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, and here you go, there is neither what? Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. For you are all one in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christ, you're Abraham's. All he circles back to the promises of Abraham and the connection between the Jew and the Gentile. Heirs according to the promise. And then he continues on. What is a child? A child is like a slave. You're waiting on the inheritance, but you own everything, he says. You're under a guardian and a manager. Well, what is my point there? Again, not an explicit saying, like, look. Paul's not explicitly saying here is, well, he's not using the word social or society. But let's be honest. I mean, there are still, if we're talking about relationships, there's still male and female. I, I, I know it's 2021, a lot of conversations out there. I'm going to go with scripture on that one and sort of reality. And there's still male and female. So we know that. So what is he actually saying? He's talking about an, the inaugurated spiritual social reality of the church in terms of that dynamic of power. Because what is the law if it is not a kind of power that Christ has redefined through his mercy and sacrifice? So the, the, the promise becomes the social reality that's anticipated that is, can no longer be oriented around power relationships of slave and free, male and female. Those kind of dynamics are kind of irrelevant when you start anticipating the spiritual reality of the kingdom, even though we know they're a reality. Paul knows that too. He's a male, <laughs> right? Finally, the spiritual social reality of the church always includes mercy goodness and obedience and this is an important point i think to conclude on as i'll 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 try to summarize that when we we live in in a in a time where we want political answers and social answers and we want them immediately and we want to be identified with the right tribe when it comes to our convictions about these things and i think that as we look at christ's words and we look at paul's words what we begin to realize is we have to be very careful. And I think Peter takes us a step further that we better be very careful as, as children of God, as, as members, pilgrims in this world of binding people and binding their conscience before Christ if we leave out mercy and obedience ourselves in terms of uh, what we're called to. And and so, and what I mean by that, and I know this is a, I I think the church has to be careful about social and political and cultural pronouncements. It has to, I'm not saying it can't make them, nor am I suggesting that it's not at times wise in in the course of wisdom to do so. 
But, but I think we all, it always has to be governed. If you look at Peter's words, 1 Peter 2. Um, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, pilgrims, resident aliens, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or to governor sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, the church. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Um, of course, what Peter is saying there is not our goodness unto salvation, right? We know that. He's not talking about being good unto our salvation. He's talking about living out our salvation as a kind of community that understands our goodness is always oriented to this eternal home, this eternal promise of, of mercy and resurrection that we live under. So uh, the kind of social reality, this is what I meant if I went back to this point about power. When I say it subverts it, that's precisely how it subverts it, is that mercy and obedience generates a new orientation of social relationships that we then live out in the church. So that's kind of how I would exegete this on culture and politics and, and society. You know, any uh, conversation on that? Or? What, I, what I was thinking about where you were talking was notwithstanding like the interpretive exercise that you just led us through, which is super interesting. And I had to look this up because I don't know my Bible very well. But I mean, in, in Acts 2, they're talking about yeah. right after Jesus and the 3,000 yeah. coming every day. Yeah. They just sell everything that they own. Yeah. And it's all communal. Isn't yeah. that like the most uh, practical application of Christian society? Yeah. And that's a hard thing. That, that is a hard thing, and Christ has hard sayings about those things. And um, I, I, I think you're exactly right. That, that is a reality. It's a reality under the apostolic order. So we, we, what we, you, know, you, you have to believe that it's there to, to give us a foretaste or at least a model of what this power of the Spirit is capable of. But our prayer book does say, <laughs> and it says it this way, <laughs> Unlike the Anabaptist, <laughs> you do not have to go give up all your goods to be a Christian or have everything in common to be a Christian. Now, that's probably a whole other hour of conversation, and I don't, you know, but, um, and I work at a historically Baptist school, so I want to be careful what that means, you know, how I say this, probably they're not giving up anything yet that I can tell, but uh, the, <laughs> the, the <laughs> but the gist of it is, um, yeah. Right? I mean, you can't run from that. Now, we, we can exegete it different ways, I suppose. But um, it's clear that under that apostolic order in Acts, we are seeing the birth of a community that will have an eternal reality. So. What, what, 
To do what? To create a hierarchy. Because there's, there's a hierarchy of the structure. I mean, we've kind of gone through this in our relationship with the bishop. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah. People have different opinions on that. But. So, obviously, right, um, that's a very hard question. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but also, I, I'm not going to. So, look. Let, let, maybe a whole other set of lessons or thought is, you know, in history, we end up with different expressions of what the church is supposed to look like. By God's providence, we, that we are not in a uniform church system, okay? And as under the Episcopal or Bishop system, we see authority as it is inherited from the apostolic order as it's... But, but to be fair, we're not the only... I, I would argue most Christian communities have some sort of hierarchy, even if it's unarticulated. So the, the Episcopal tradition articulates in a very specific office. The presbytery in offices, plural, right? And then congregationalists in... that is supposed to be a democratized sort of system. Um, but... Uh, as far as what the right one is, it's the Episcopal one. <laughs> so. <laughs> what else can I say? I don't. Obviously, a huge. It's complicated. Yeah. So. Yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. And we anticipate the eternal reality of the kingdom of heaven. So if we live in the realm of the supernatural universe and the eternal perspective. And that's what makes us one, whether we run into someone or that's meet right. someone on a platform in Europe and we find out that they're fellow believers. That's right. It's not a philosophy we share. Well said. And this well said. all transcends yeah. whether whatever country we're in yes, and all that. And so I think it's we should be careful not to try to give structure to that. It is that. Yeah. And um, that that's what makes us more That's really well said. That's very well said, John. I mean I think that maybe as somebody who studies history, that's where a lot of the error comes in is when when people groups decide we've got to we've got to define it so carefully, um, and yet we do it by nature. We do it, and God gives us instructions. But you make a really good point when it comes to the kingdom of heaven and the new community. You're gonna you can't nail spiritual jello to the wall. <laughs> that that's that's Christ to give us. That's Christ to give us, no matter where we are and under what political social system we live under. Can I close in prayer? All right. Father, uh, we trust you. We, we give thanks that we live under conditions to come to church, that we, we know that your church is, is headed towards your kingdom, is part of your kingdom, uh, inaugurated, and, and it will be in its fullness, and that in this small, small frame of mortal coil, we are, we are part of that and have so much to look forward to. Uh, in the gift of the resurrection and, and, the, and, and the, the knowledge that we are your children. Uh, pray that we may be faithful servants of a very imperfect bride of Christ in the church. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening.
listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.